This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. It's great to see you. Thank you for being here this evening. My name is Beck Taylor. It's my privilege to serve as Whitworth University's 18th president and host for tonight's program. Uh, I want to welcome all of you to the first evening of the 2017-18 President's Colloquy on Civil Discourse. This colloquy series is designed to be a three-evening conversation spread throughout the academic year, which convenes the Whitworth community on issues that inform both the challenges and the opportunities associated with constructive, healthy, productive, and civil discourse on issues that divide us, and to do so from a distinctly Christian and multidisciplinary perspective. A recent uh, student survey conducted last spring by the Associated Students of Whitworth University, uh, respondents were asked to comment on their experiences with having conversations on controversial issues. Almost without exception, and regardless of the respondents' political or religious leanings, students self-reported in this ASWU survey that they were extremely unhappy with the state of discourse today on our campus and in the larger society. Again, irrespective of the students' ideological beliefs, students reported difficulty finding spaces for constructive dialogue. They lamented the role social and other media are having on the form and tone of our interactions today. And they almost universally said that they were fearful. They were fearful of being marginalized, cast out, or publicly shamed for having viewpoints or perspectives that might be contrary to those being shared in whatever social or learning circles that they were engaged in causing many of them to shy away from interactions that might involve conflict. Well, similar polls of Americans demonstrate that these sentiments are not limited to Whitworth students alone. Every morning now, as I scan the pages of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal or Chronicle of Higher Education, I read of communities and campuses on the brink as they struggle to find constructive and generative spaces for real conversation and understanding on divisive issues. It is my opinion that Americans may be more divided on issues than ever before, but even more troubling to me, we in this country may be as ill-equipped as ever before in navigating our differences in ways that allow for mutual understanding and healthy discourse. College campuses are the epicenter of these social phenomena. By design, colleges and universities like Whitworth are designed to welcome disparate and divergent perspectives on important social, political, economic, and religious issues. Some might even argue that doing so represents one of the most fundamental responsibilities of any learning community. As such, campuses have always been places that amplified discourse, unrest, advocacy, and protest. Those aren't necessarily bad things. And as a college president, I want to lead a campus that is chasing the difficult issues 
empowering people to advocate for what they believe in, and providing forums and venues for opposing perspectives to be heard. But how we do these things is important. And it seems to me that some of the historic and prevailing assumptions and values of the academy, particularly around the shape and form of our discourse, are being undercut in alarming ways. As I've shared with many of you, I think that our community's unwillingness and inability to engage in civil discourse on issues that divide us represent an existential threat not only to the purposes of the academy, but also to our American democracy. Tonight's program is the first in a three-part conversation we intend to have this year that is shaped to allow us, the Whitworth community, to chase these issues. Tonight's program, titled, Can We Speak the Truth in Love? Christian Reflections on Civil Discourse, is meant to give form to future conversations we'll have by explicitly naming and unpacking perspectives on these issues that derive from Christian and biblical perspectives. In short, we are unashamed in acknowledging that Whitworth's Christian identity offers unique resources and ideas that help us shape our opportunities for healthy discourse, and that should be front of mind as we consider these important topics. Before I introduce our speakers for the evening, I want to acknowledge the important partnership I have formed with Professor Nate King. Dr. King, a professor in Whitworth's philosophy department, has been instrumental in helping me to formulate and organize this colloquy series. Would you join me in thanking Nate for his good work? Thank you. Second, I'd like to mention that these sessions are being videotaped and will be made available on Whitworth's website to anyone who's interested in the coming days. And finally, after our speakers have delivered their remarks, we will open up our conversation to questions from you. Each of you should have found a pencil and a note card on your seats. And during the presentation, please jot down any questions you have for any of our speakers. Nate and Jeannie will collect these during several times uh, during the course of our evening together and choose a few for us to consider as we conclude. Delivering the plenary address tonight is Professor Joshua Lyme, faculty member in Whitworth's Department of Theology. When Josh was in seminary in the mid-2000s, he struck up a correspondence with one of Whitworth's professors of theology, Jim Edwards, and I think I saw Jim here earlier tonight. And since then, his dream was to teach at Whitworth, he says. Well, in God's providence, that came to pass. After completing doctoral studies at Duke University and teaching at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Josh and his family moved to Whitworth in 2015. And since then, he reports that they have fallen further in love with this community in every way. Josh is now in his third year here teaching various undergraduate the theological courses, particularly on the New Testament and interpreting scripture, as well as courses in our MA in Theology program. Josh also chairs the Core 150 course in our Worldview Studies program. Discussing Dr. Lyme's plenary remarks are three other fabulous members of Whitworth's faculty. I will introduce them in the order in which they will deliver their brief responses. The first is the Reverend Dr. Karen Peterson Finch, who is Associate Professor of Theology and came to Whitworth in 2008. 
Dr. Peterson Finch is an ordained minister of Word and Sacrament in the Presbyterian Church USA. Karen earned a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary and a doctorate from Gonzaga University and has done postdoctoral research at Boston College, where she is currently a fellow of the uh, Longren. Did I say that right? Longerden Institute. Karen travels internationally to speak on the methodology of ecumenical dialogue, particularly dialogue between Roman Catholic theology and her own Calvinist Reformed tradition. Next will be Dr. Kamesh Sankaran. Dr. Sankaran is professor of engineering and physics uh, who joined the Whitworth faculty in 2004. He holds a PhD in, uh, from Princeton University in aerospace engineering and plasma physics. Since coming to Whitworth, Kamesh has developed a software package for use by his collaborators at NASA and the aerospace industry, among many other achievements. Kamesh is also the team leader for Whitworth's Core 350 class which teaches students to apply their worldviews to contemporary issues and problems. Kamesh says he cares about speaking the truth in love across our differences because he was born and raised in India in a very pluralistic society. Between his immediate family and in-laws, he has family on four continents. And last, but certainly not least, is Dr. Lorna Hernandez-Jarvis. Dr. Hernandez Jarvis serves as Whitworth's Associate Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Chief Diversity Officer, joining us from Hope College just this past summer. She was educated at two Ohio universities, earning her bachelor's degree from the University of Akron and her master's and doctoral degrees in cognitive psychology from Kent State. During her long and distinguished tenure at Hope College, she served as Director of Cultural Diversity Courses in the General Education Curriculum, as Director of General Education, as Chair of the Psychology Department, and as Co-Leader of the Teaching Enhancement Workshop Program. Lorna also directed two programs at Hope College funded by the Howard Hughes Medical Institute to improve the engagement of research experiences in the classroom. Dr. Hernandez Jarvis has led workshops on intergroup dialogue, and diversity education at several higher education institutions around the country. Friends, this is truly an all-star cast, and I know that you wanna join me here at the outset in thanking all of our speakers. Thank you all. And now it's my great privilege to invite Dr. Lyme up for his opening remarks. Please welcome Dr. Lyme. Thank you, Beck. Good evening, everyone. Happy to be with you tonight. Thank you for coming out. So I have to say I have struggled with what to say tonight. Um, how do we speak in our current climate without offering platitudes, without pandering to this or that group, without further hurting those who have suffered? And most importantly for Christians, how not further to betray the kingdom of God. A counseling professor of mine used to tell upcoming therapists, you can't help lead people to places that you yourself haven't been willing to go. As I've worked on this, I've often wondered if I have been willing to go to some of the difficult places we'll discuss difficult conversations that are going on right now. I know that sometimes I have not. 
And I'm also painfully aware and have become increasingly so in preparing these remarks that I come from a very particular social location, which just means that there are some things that I can't see as clearly as other people can from different social locations. So I need your help to see and to speak in a manner worthy of a follower of Christ. Nonetheless, given that, I did learn something from playing baseball for a number of years. Uh, on occasion, it wasn't all that often, but on occasion, I would be first in the batting lineup. And I came to take some comfort in that, because at least in the first inning, I would never be the third out. So <laughs> if I strike out, we have three more people uh, coming to do cleanup. So here we go. The God whom Christians worship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, brought into being out of nothingness all that is by God's speech. God spoke a whole cosmos into existence, and it was distinct from God. A cosmos that Genesis tells us in beautifully poetic language was well-ordered, delightful, and well-functional. It was good. Likewise, the being whom Christians consider their true enemy, which is not human beings, but what Paul says in Ephesians 6, that spiritual power aligned against us, tore and tears God's world asunder by speech. Will you really die if you break the word God has given you? God's enemy has always asked humanity. So God creates what is beautiful and well-ordered by speaking. God's enemy tears asunder, at least in part, by speaking. What about us? Human beings stand at the fault line of creative or destructive speech. For Christians, this is because human beings reflect their creator, their speaking creator, or God's enemy. Do we not also speak and shape entire worlds? Do not the words we use with our children, with our students, with our peers, or with our colleagues not create in them or at least nudge them toward either flourishing and life or destruction and death. Stanley Hauerwas, one of my favorite Christian ethicists and theologians, put it this way. You must remember that morally speaking, the first issue is never what we are to do, but what you should see. Here's the way it works, he says. You can only act in a world that you can see, and you must be taught to see by learning to say. Again, you can only act in the world that you can see, and you must be taught to see by learning to say. Our speech shapes how we perceive what is true, what is real, what is good, what is evil. So if this is, where any, if this is anywhere close to true, then the Christian life as a whole is not just like learning another language. It is learning another language. So what would it mean then for our speech to be disciplined by our Christian faith? To answer that, we actually have to ask and answer a different question. That is, what is the speech of God like? We have to ask and answer that question, because as the image of God, our speech should reflect that of its creator and redeemer. God's mode of speaking is paradigmatic for human speech. As every Christian tradition has confessed, the speech of God has a very particular face and a particular name. The face of a first century Jewish man, 
with the name Jesus of Nazareth. This radical and seemingly absurd claim is made nowhere clearer than in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. Here are a few of the well-known lines. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and full of truth. From these lines, there are three characteristics of God's speech to which we need to attend. And we need to attend to these because we want to have the hope of learning how to speak life and not to speak death. The hope of speaking in a way that will mend the world rather than tear it further apart. Or, if we are unable to mend it, that is to say, if the powers around us are too great, which, in fact, they actually may be, at least we will be witnessing to a different way of speech and life. So the three characteristics of God's speech that John emphasizes are these. First, God's speech is incarnational. Second, God's speech is full of grace. And third, God's speech is full of truth. So let's talk about the incarnation. What is the purpose of the incarnation? Of God becoming a human being, of becoming seeable and touchable and killable. Of all that we could say, we must say reconciliation. The very self-expression of God, God's word, became a real human being so as to draw human beings, indeed, as Paul says in Colossians 1, all of creation back into fellowship with God. To paraphrase one of the oldest expressions in the church, going all the way back to the second century, the Son of God became what we are so that we might become what he is, sons and daughters of God. And with whom does God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, seek reconciliation? With his enemies. And how does he seek it? By becoming one of us, by seeking fellowship with us. Howard Thurman, the wonderful African-American theologian of the early and mid-20th century, caught the profundity of God's movement toward us in Christ when he said this, When Jesus became a friend to the tax collectors, the enemies of Israel, and secured one as his intimate companion, it was a spiritual triumph of such staggering proportions that after 1,900 years, it defies rational explanation. That is just right. The reason of God unveiled in the incarnation transcends human reason. God seeks reconciliation with, not the destruction of God's enemies. So what does this mean for us seeking to conform our speech to the incarnate word? Well, just this. For those seeking to shape their speech around the incarnate word, reconciliation and truer fellowship become the motive force behind all speech. Now, in saying this, we should be rather careful in what we mean. It is all too easy to find examples of using such language, like reconciliation or forgiveness, to silence grievances or to perpetuate the status quo. The title of a recent article in the establishment sums it up well. Demanding black forgiveness is just another way to control us. That is certainly possible and has been done. 
So to say that the reconciling efforts of the incarnation are that which motivate our speech habits is not to say that we have to become intimate friends with those who habitually hurt us by their speech and their actions. Nor does it mean circumventing speaking the truth. Indeed, speaking the truth is the condition which makes possible the hope of reconciliation. So while Christians are called to seek reconciliation, this can never provide a legitimate reason for silencing victims. The point is simply this. Just to the extent that we let the motivating force behind our speech habits become something other than reconciliation, other than cultivating a relationship, even if just one of mutual understanding, we conform our words to something other than the incarnate word whom we profess to worship. What could this look like in the real world? A few years ago, there was a remarkable article. It was written by Shane Windmeyer. He is the founder of Campus Pride and a leading advocate for LGBT rights. The article is kind of funnily titled, Dan and Me, My Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. Dan Cathy, as you may know, is the president and chief operating officer of Chick-fil-A, an, orga an organization known for its conservative views about sexuality and marriage. In the article, Windmeyer details what he calls one of the most unexpected moments of his life. His organization, Campus Pride, was leading a national multi-million dollar campaign against Chick-fil-A. And in the midst of that campaign, he got a personal phone call from none other than Dan Cathy. He says he hesitatingly took the call, expecting to get an earful and perhaps notice of a lawsuit. But that's not what happened. Just the opposite happened. In that phone call, which led to more phone calls, to text messages, to personal meetings, Dan Cathy tried to get to know Shane Winmeyer. Here's how Winmeyer describes it in his own words. Never once did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for campus pride to stop protesting Chick-fil-A. On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns and our real-life accounts from youth about the negative impacts that Chick-fil-A was having on campus climate. Dan sought first to understand, not to be understood. He confessed that he had been naive to the issues at hand and the unintended impact of his company's actions. Through all this, Dan and I shared respectful, enduring communication, communication, and we built trust. His demeanor was always one of kindness and openness. Dan expressed the sincerest interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. And I, in return, gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. That's remarkable. Even more remarkable is that neither Dan Cathy nor Shane Winmeyer felt compelled to give up their deeply held convictions. But that did not prevent them from a genuine relationship of mutual understanding respect or even friendship. And as Winmeyer makes clear later in the article, it's actually had effects on his organization. This could only happen because they were willing to take the risk of fellowship. And as Winmeyer put it, Dan Cathy sought to listen more than to speak, to understand more than to be understood. The incarnation of the word shapes people and communities to seek reconciliation 
like this. So the next way the incarnation shapes our speech. Even while the incarnate word shapes our speech by the hope of reconciliation, it likewise teaches us sobriety. Sobriety about the prospects of reconciliation and success. As John puts it, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Though he came to his own, his own did not receive him. Utterly sobering is that when God's reconciling self-expression took flesh in Jesus of Nazareth, human beings killed him. If we are tempted toward sentimentality and optimism about pursuing the way of Jesus in our disagreements, we need only gaze upon the incarnate word crucified. It is just true that there is no publicly available, incontrovertible proof that the reconciling word made flesh in Jesus led to anything but suffering and death. If, therefore, the primary motivating factor behind conforming our speech to the incarnate word is to see results, we will most likely, or at least often, be disappointed. How's that for encouragement? We usually think, right, that just with a little effort, with a little perseverance, with a little savvy, right, we will inevitably see results. Success, or as Michael Scott on The Office would put it, win, win, win. And we may sometimes see success, but we probably shouldn't expect it as the norm. Rather, that which sustains our witness to the incarnate word through our speech habits is the same conviction that generated and has sustained the church from the very beginning. That is the joyful news of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of the incarnate word from death's grip means that success Jesus's or our own is defined not by the results that we achieve, but by the faithfulness of our witness. Many of you will know the life and ministry of John Perkins. He's been one of the leading Christian activists for reconciliation across racial differences since the early 1960s. He has suffered much for Christ in his pursuit of reconciliation, and we have much to learn from him and his community. And he recently wrote a book called Dream With Me, where he invites the reader to reflect with him on what a world shaped by the love and mercy and justice of Jesus Christ would look like. But what's rather remarkable is that in this vision that he casts, he makes clear that what, what has kept him going for 60 years in this very difficult ministry is not the success of his ministry. He says it like this toward the beginning of the book. As you mull over what I have written, done and dreamed, I hope you will say, John Perkins tried to live out a Christian life in the days in which he lived. That's all. Just that I did my best to be faithful with what God has given me in the days he has allotted me. He simply seeks to be a faithful witness. When the risen Jesus appoints his apostles in Acts chapter 1, or when he appoints someone like John Perkins, or appoints you, or me, or the Whitworth community, to be his representatives, he does not say, you're my A-team, and I'm going to win the world through you. He says, you will be my witnesses, witnesses of reconciliation to the crucified and risen one through the life of the church. 
Now, what this witness of reconciliation entails becomes more manifest in the next two characteristics John details. Those two characteristics are grace and truth. Twice in just a few verses, John says the incarnate word is full of grace and full of truth. Full of grace and full of truth. Now, of course, there's, as in all biblical studies, much debate about the exact meaning of these two words. We're not going there tonight. I trust we have a rough and ready sense of what these words mean. So what do these two characteristics of God's incarnate speech have to teach us about civil discourse? First of all, it is of utmost importance that we not separate the two. As my friend and theologian Adam Nieder reminds us, to treat grace and truth as totally separate entities would falsify how these terms function in a Christian grammar. For Christians, in Jesus Christ, Grace and truth are united in one person, or rather, they simply are one person. It's not as though sometimes Jesus was truthful and sometimes he was gracious. He was and always is, both at once, and therefore he always spoke and speaks both at once. So for us to learn how our speech might be formed by grace and truth means that we must attend closely and persistently and lovingly to the life of the word made flesh, and seek by the power of the Spirit to live our lives in conformity to that life that united grace and truth. This is difficult. In fact, it is the most difficult task we could possibly undertake. We cannot just fall into speaking with grace and truth. As much as I love Harry Potter, we cannot conjure it by a spell. To do one or the other is, of course, quite easy. It is not difficult to obliterate someone with a particular version of the truth, witness our current discourse. Nor is it difficult to speak with a certain kind of grace, especially to those whose favor we wish to curry, conveniently ignoring the importance of truth. But to do both at once, in every moment of our speech, that will take a lifetime of self-renunciation. Because recognizing and speaking and living in grace and truth implicates the whole shape of our lives and the whole shape of our community. Kierkegaard, never one to pull punches, said it this way, it is sheer illusion to think that in relation to the truth there is an abridgment, a shortcut that dispenses with the necessity of struggling for it. With respect to acquiring truth to live by, Every generation and every individual must essentially begin from the beginning. How then do we come to speak and to live in grace and truth? There's really just one primary thing I want us to hold on to with a few implications, and it's this. Because as Christians, our confidence lies in the mercy of God in Christ and in a community of forgiveness, we must become more intimately acquainted with our own failings than with the failings of those with whom we disagree. Anyone who opens the pages of the Gospels knows that Jesus never tires of making this point. He's like our son Silas during the postseason of the MLB right now. Regardless of who's speaking or what's happening or what's going on, Silas wants to and will talk about one thing, baseball. Like Silas, never one to waste an inopportune moment, Jesus says over and over, hey, did I ever tell you the story about the guy who didn't reckon with his own faults first? I don't think I told you that one yet. The disciples are like, yes, Jesus, you told us that one. Right? 
One of the most familiar versions is this. Do not judge, lest you be judged. First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's or sister's eye. Now, intellectually, this principle is very simple to grasp. And pragmatically speaking, probably many of us would agree that a little humility can go a long ways in disagreements. It is not intellectually or logically difficult, but it is profoundly difficult to bend our wills to it, to will to see where I and where my community have failed in relation to our neighbor, and especially, in Jesus' words, our enemies. Why is this? Why is humility and self-awareness so difficult to attain? There are, of course, more reasons than we could possibly discuss. I just want to name two. First, this kind of humility and self-awareness is difficult to attain because it feels like weakness and death. In a culture where survival of the fittest is written into our marketplace, into our sports, even into our education, willingly admitting that you and your community regularly fail sounds like one thing, losing. I mean, try it on your next resume. I usually try to get all my papers done with the least effort possible, and I barely showed up to class on time. Won't work so well. Or make your next Instagram post, right? A picture of yourself when you first wake up in the morning before you wash your face and brush your teeth. Rather, we habituate ourselves into being masters of self-promotion. But those whose allegiance lies primarily with the kingdom of God worship a crucified king who triumphs through weakness, and who takes that which is broken and redeems it. Can we become a community that speaks its weaknesses and failures as an opportunity to seek forgiveness and see redemption happen, simply because we believe in a God who brings life from death? Secondly, this kind of humility and self-awareness are difficult to attain because they require that we release ultimate allegiance to anything but the kingdom of God. Now, of course, we all ally ourselves with causes, groups, stories, dreams that shape how we live in the world. And this is a good and wonderful thing. But when those allegiances, rather than the kingdom of God, become ultimate, when they define who we are and what we are here for, it becomes almost impossible to see and to admit their faults. Because to do so, is to crack the foundation upon which we have built our house. And most of us don't like to do that. Let me tell you a story of this. Alex Austin and James Dickerson wrote a book on hate crimes in Mississippi. And they tell the story of a church in Mississippi in the 60s that was divided over whether or not to integrate. It goes like this. The Mississippi Delta was in a tizzy over rumors that blacks might show up at white churches to worship. Some white churches hired armed guards to keep them out. Other white churches considered allowing them to attend services. One Delta congregation, a Presbyterian church with deep cultural roots, was split right down the middle. Half of the deacons voted no. Half of the deacons voted yes. After a contentious meeting to resolve the stalemate, one of the church elders hurriedly left the meeting to deliver the news to his mother who herself was a firm believer in old-time segregation. Well, what did you decide, she demanded. We decided to let them attend services. You know I am very much opposed to that. I know, Mother, but think about it this way. What would Jesus do? 
I know good and well what he'd do, she huffed. He'd say, let him in. Then she paused a moment, pondering the implications of what she'd said. (laughs) Then she added, he'd be wrong. Most of us, I included, cannot imagine being that honest about disagreeing with Jesus. But this is, of course, precisely what we do, mostly implicitly, when we give our ultimate allegiance to anything but the kingdom of God, made manifest in a community witnessing to reconciliation. What should this look like in real life? Well, not least that we should be less concerned about pointing out where others are failing and more concerned simply with enacting it in our own community. Also, recall the words that Winmeyer used of Dan Cathy. He said, Dan sought first to understand. He confessed that he had been naive. He expressed regret and genuine sadness. That's the language of seeking to become more acquainted with one's own failures than with the person with whom you disagree. I cannot presume to speak for other communities, but it is my conviction that those of us with relative privilege, and I would include myself in that category, should heed well Jesus' words in Luke 12, to whom much is given, much will be expected. Those of us, for example, who have received the gift of relative insulation from systematic societal evils have a particular responsibility to listen attentively and patiently to those who have historically less privilege, those who have suffered systemic and individual injustices more consistently. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, if we're always pointing the finger at ourselves, is there no place to speak out in disagreement with others? Of course there is. Indeed, we must on occasion speak out in disagreement if we are to be conformed to the image of the incarnate word. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God precisely by speaking out and acting out where God's justice and mercy and love were being ignored or defied. That's much of what got Jesus killed. The point is simply this, the order. First, unremitting allegiance to the kingdom of God. Then humility and self-critique. Then critique of the other. Only then will we unite the grace and truth characteristic of the word made flesh. I'll end with this. One of the more remarkable examples of engaging with grace and truth across profound difference is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham city jail. Many of you will be familiar with this letter. Dr. King penned it on scraps of newspaper while sitting in a jail cell in response to certain white clergy members who, though they had some sympathy with the civil rights movement, openly opposed King's and his supporters' public actions in Birmingham considering them unwise and untimely. Dr. King's open letter back to them is a remarkable piece of work, not simply for its typical eloquence, but that he says it at all and the way in which he says it. Dr. King's response clearly comes from a man and a community whose Christian character has been forged through suffering. He has good grounds for being bitter or caustic, vitriolic, toward these supposed allies who had betrayed his cause by openly opposing him. But Dr. King refuses to write them off. Rather, he engages them with grace and truth. If you read that letter closely, you'll see Dr. King counter their arguments, agree with some of their points, justify his actions, call them to greater empathy, express deep frustration, but he never turns his back on them. 
in the end of his anguished response, he says this, If I have said anything in this letter that is an overstatement of the truth and is indicative of an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything in this letter that is an understatement of the truth and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything other than brotherhood, I beg God, forgive me. It is really a breathtaking ending to a letter filled with gracious truth-telling. Dr. King's letter to those who disagreed with him, written in such a divisive and painful time, bears Christian witness to the possibility of uniting grace and truth in our speech across deep differences. Dr. King could well be our tutor and we his pupils as we seek to conform our words to the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Thank you. What an honor it is for me to follow uh, those marvelous words. I'm going to compliment uh, what Josh has done by focusing in particular, see, glasses on, glasses off, I'm at that age, um, by focusing in particular on the love piece of speaking the truth in love. So um, you'll hear echoes of what Josh has said um, focused more particularly on the idea of love. My experience in speaking across difference and loving across difference comes from my training in ecumenical dialogue. If that's a new word for you, ecumenical means dialogue between separated Christians. And from teaching a class here at Whitworth called The Bible for Doubters, a class that has truly changed my life. I often say to students on the first day of the course that tolerance is excellent, but love is better. And I ask them, what would you rather be, loved or tolerated? And I have found that love in a context of disagreement, or even potential disagreement, takes unexpected forms. For example, we normally identify love as a feeling, and we place it squarely in the heart department, of the heart and mind education. For this reason, when you hear the word truth and you hear the word love, we have almost a tendency to put them as opposites. Uh, but I am learning about love as an intellectual act, love as a discipline of mind. This is not a new thought in Christian history. The Thomist tradition, the tradition of Thomas Aquinas, is my main avenue into dialogue with Catholic theology. And it considers that the will, and the will is the origin of love, the will and the intellect are ultimately impossible to separate. So love for God always involves the mind as well as the will or the heart. And if I am to love God with my mind, what does it mean to love my neighbor with my mind? It is not just a feeling. It is an act of will and an act of reason to love your neighbor. And so I have uh, three points. You can tell that Josh and I come from similar roots. We have three points for everything. And um, I have three points for how you love your neighbor with your mind. And again, these are deeply influenced by ex practical, everyday experience of building community across difference. 
Uh, the first one is that loving my neighbor intellectually means that I demonstrate patience with ideas that frighten me. Because God is truth, he is the enemy of the lies in my life. He points out my inconsistencies. He calls me to repentance for idolatries, and it hurts. And it hurts in a similar way when a student in the Bible for Doubters decides that an argument for the reliability of the Gospels is not persuasive, or notices that I just lost my temper, and that does happen, or thinks that God murdered Egyptian babies during the Passover in the book of Exodus. When I was first teaching the Bible for Doubters, this and other statements hurt me so much and so deeply that I would try to defend the Christian faith from every single comment like that uh, because I love it so much. But that fell short of my goal of radical hospitality to doubt. I have learned that defensiveness does not make truth more true. It just makes a lot of noise. It puts the focus on me. It takes the focus off God. God can handle doubt, anger, frustration, dissent, rage, challenge, and rejection much better than I can. If you want to love God, you have to be ready to embrace a lot of reality that you might prefer to avoid. The intellectual discipline of love for neighbor is the same embrace extended horizontally. In other words, love is the patient embrace of disequilibrium. And this is an embrace both of heart and of mind. A second point, loving my neighbor intellectually, as well as make, having it make me be patient with ideas that frighten me, it also means that I stay calm enough to reason well. I commented a moment ago that defensiveness makes a lot of noise. In a divided culture, as you well know, there is a lot of defensiveness, and therefore there is a lot of emotional noise. In the Bible for Doubters, we observe that cultural discourse on religion today or on any topic of ultimate concern is long on pathos and short on logos. So I'm using terms there from Aristotle's rhetoric, uh, pathos meaning emotion and logos meaning reason. And the students know this and they recognize it. In a discourse that is dominated by negative emotion, logical fallacies will abound. A fallacy is a shortcut, it's a trick, it's a stratagem, and we rely on these when, for emotional reasons, we deeply want to win and we don't care how we do it. Now, love, in its intellectual form, does not try to trick or coerce or control. It will make sound arguments and hope for sound arguments in return. It will rejoice when the interlocutor brings their best game. It will give advice for strengthening an opposing argument. So staying calm in dialogue and thinking carefully can be an act of love. Reason acknowledges that we cannot control God or other people. Love aims at self-control. That alone is in our power. I know that we are doing well in the Bible for Doubters class when some absolutely terrifying subject has come up 
And I look around and I listen and there is laughter in the room. We are at ease. We can think as well as feel. So the second part of loving across difference and loving intellectually is staying calm enough to reason well. And the third is, surprisingly, loving my neighbor, and Josh has hinted at this, intellectually means that I commit to a position. This is where we get it very wrong. We think that dialogue is relativism, that it seeks agreement at all costs, that it moves toward the least common denominator of bare agreement. That is not true dialogue. That's cheap and easy. True dialogue is that moment when everyone speaks their truth and miraculously, a new avenue for common inquiry is born. When that happens, it's stunning. It's a miracle. And this cannot happen without transparency, which is the courage to take a position based on conscience. In the early days of teaching the Bible for Doubters, I was so afraid that if I were to speak my conscience on matters of sexuality in particular, that would cause a divide between me and students or between those students who take a conservative position as I do and those who don't. But I have become more courageous with time because I have seen extraordinary community form between people who disagree on sexuality. The cultural warfare says that this is impossible. I am here to tell you that it is very possible, and I have experienced it. When it happens, this kind of community is a miracle of what the Reformed tradition calls common grace. It is the Holy Spirit acting in a way that is accessible to all people. It transcends both diversity and uniformity. And let me tell you that diversity and uniformity can both be idols. It is good to remember that the Bible does not celebrate either diversity or uniformity for its own sake. The Bible celebrates a community formed around the gospel and sustained by disciplines of love. Speaking your conscience with courage can be a discipline of love. And so to conclude, we need to stop assuming that love is a feeling. Love is an act of will. Thomas Aquinas said that with respect to loving God, there is no love without knowledge. Love of God is just an emotional reflex if we don't know the true character of God. The same is true with people. If you can't create an atmosphere um, through your will, through your reason, that is a place of dialogue, then you will not know each other, and then love does not have a meaning. It's just pie in the sky by and by. So I encourage us all to embrace disequilibrium, to stay calm, and to speak our truth, all for the sake of love. From the book of Hebrews, no discipline is pleasant at the time. It's painful. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I am experiencing in the doubters class a harvest of righteousness and peace and a lot of joy. 
I don't want all of you to miss out on this joy. Thank you. Thanks, friends. I just know that I'm not a theology professor because I didn't prepare a three-point message. <laughs> I actually have four points. As I do in Core 350, I'm going to try to build on the foundations laid by other uh, colleagues and try to apply them to some practical questions. I teach engineering, and in engineering, we find that we learn some of the most important lessons from our failures. Failures, namely, when things don't work the way we want them to work. Working through failures is hard work. It requires intellectual discipline to go through a checklist of possible reasons why things didn't go the way we wanted them to go through. The very reason we are gathered here today is because we recognize that we often fail in speaking the truth in love. If it were easy, there wouldn't be a reason for this colloquy. We wouldn't be gathered here. We all know that we individually and collectively have failed to do, the, do so on many instances. And especially true when we address contentious issues such as abortion, human sexuality, race relations, immigration, or pretty much anything to do with the President of the United States. <laughs> In any number of these issues, we repeatedly fail to speak the truth in love. Partly it's because these are complex issues that deeply affect our society in many different ways, and these issues often involve multiple components of truth that might appear to be in tension with each other. One way or another, we routinely fail to speak the truth and love in these cases. Why does this happen? And like a good engineer, I want to work through a checklist of possible reasons why we may be doing so over here. As I said, this is the difficult process that requires intellectual virtue of disciplines of how to go through this so that we can get this right. So let me go through a four-point checklist of diagnosing why we may fail to speak the truth in love. First is perhaps that we need to be convinced that truth matters. You see, truth is not a power play. Truth, as Josh Pinerod, is a person Truth matters because we worship a God who declared himself to be the truth, the one who is the I am. Therefore, the distinction between what is and what is not is central to the very existence of education and especially Christian higher education. Whether in designing an airplane or developing a new drug for a disease, truth matters because it can either protect life or destroy life. Likewise, for us as educators, it matters whether we teach the truth that equips our students to love God and love each other or fail to do so. For those of us who are teachers, James warns us that those who teach will be judged with the greater strictness by God. Therefore, in education, and especially in Christian higher education, truth matters. Now, this is not a call for self-confidence in our possession of the truth, but actually it's confidence in God who is the truth. 
we must recognize our epistemic limitations in our pursuit of truth, but if we give up on the ontological reality of truth, we of all people are to be most pitied. By the way, if you don't know the distinction between epistemology and metaphysics, you really need the core program. <laughs> our finite and flawed nature leads us to abuse truth claims. But we throw the baby out with the bathwater if we succumb to the lie that all truth claims are merely sociological power plays. Truth matters, so we must speak it in love. Point number two. Another reason why we may fail to speak the truth in love is perhaps because we really need to believe that truth sets us free. I grew up as a Hindu in India, and we were all indoctrinated about Gandhi's remarkable character and convictions that led to the freedom of what's now three nations of almost two billion people. The movement that Gandhi led was called Satyagraha, literally translated truth force. Gandhi was not a Christian, but whatever little that he understood of the Christian message influenced his convictions that truth is in fact what was going to set him and his people free. Therefore, after moving to the United States and after coming to Christ, it was surprising, shocking, and saddening for me that communities and societies that bear the Christian name have given up on the conviction that truth exists and that truth matters and that truth sets us free. The Christian truth is that all humans are sinful, and therefore all human institutions and all human structures are sinful, and that's why they are unjust. The Christian truth is also that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and that everyone is in need of forgiveness, and God's grace is freely available to all. So we need to believe that truth can and does set us free. The third reason in my checklist of reasons why we may fail to speak the truth in love is that perhaps we need to seek a higher purpose to speak the truth in love, and that is to know Christ. This is very much like what Josh talk, uh, talked about. The Apostle Paul exhorts the Ephesian church to speak the truth in love. In fact, our colloquy's name comes from that verse in Ephesians chapter 4. But he goes on to say there's a reason why they may speak the truth in love, for them to grow up in every way into Christ. It turns out that seeking to grow into Christ also happens to benefit our community. But we make a mistake. We have a tendency to want the fruit and forget the root. You see, the Christian faith is ultimately not about personal advancement or even social advancement, though it can provide both. You see, God cannot be used as a means to our ends, even good ends. It is by having Christ as our end goal that we will reap all of these ancillary rewards. As C.S. Lewis so eloquently put it, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you will get neither. So we must seek this higher purpose to know Christ. And that, seeking this higher purpose, is one of those things perhaps that can help us to speak truth and love. As my friend Josh said, our speech stands at the fault line of creative speech of God or destructive speech of God's enemy. By our speech, we reveal whether we are mimicking God or are we mimicking God's enemy. For as Jesus said, it is out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Our speech is a barometer of our relationship with God. 
Speaking truth in love matters because it reveals and shapes our relationship with God. And my last point, finally, perhaps another reason why we may not speak truth in love is because we need yet another purpose, and that is to make Christ known. Christ talked about how he brings shalom, but the shalom that Jesus brings is not like the one that we can create for ourselves. He says, that my peace I give to you, not as the world gives I give to you. But if the peace that Jesus brings is not like the one that we can bring ourselves, what then is our purpose? Apostle Paul says that in the second letter to the Corinthians, that we are to function as ambassadors for Christ's reconciling work in a world that is not reconciled to God. Therefore, our job description requires us to work with those whose views are different from ours. And because our job requires us to work with those whose views are different from ours, we cannot speak 50% truth and 50% grace because that is not representative of God. We need to be full of grace and truth. So to summarize, the lessons from our failure checklist is that perhaps we need to be more convinced that truth matters. Perhaps we need to believe that truth does set us free. Perhaps we need to seek the higher purpose of knowing Christ to speak truth and love. And perhaps we also need the additional purpose of making Christ known to this world to speak the truth and love. Identifying these failures can help us learn. But identifying failures should also turn us towards God. It is my prayer that God will redeem our failures to speak the truth and love and grow us individually and as a community to become the body of Christ. Thank you. I want to start uh, by sharing a beautiful, powerful message by Maya Angelou. Words are things, I am convinced. You must be careful, careful about the words you use or the words you allow to be used in your house. In the Old Testament, we are told in John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Words are things. You must be careful. Careful about calling people out of their names, using racial pejoratives and sexual pejoratives, and all that ignorance. Don't do that. Someday, we'll be able to measure the power of words. Words are things, I'm convinced. I think they get on the walls. They get in your wallpaper. They get in your rugs, in your upholstery, in your clothes, and finally, into you. As Josh pointed out, Words have the power to create and to destroy. Identities are constituted by narratives, damaged by narratives, and repaired through narratives. Narratives are constructed by our words 
and by our interpretation of those words. We can speak truth in love, but we must do it in a manner that encourages others to engage with us in ways that we can all learn and flourish. This means that to engage in dialogue or in civil discourse, we should use discernment, a concept that happens to be central to my Quaker faith. Quakers are called to constantly discern whether each of our actions is what God called us to do. Let me share uh, with you a brief anecdote, perhaps uh, to illustrate the importance of discernment in a probably pretty light way, but I think it will get the point across. Um, Quakers, first of all, worship in silence, as some of you may know, uh, to create the space for God to speak directly to them. So children learn how important it is to always be seeking God's word. So this story that I'm going to share with you is, of course, of a Quaker mother and a child. So a Quaker mother is helping her four-year-old son with his bath when the little boy says, Mom, God spoke to me today. Oh, she responded, and what did God say to you? The little boy got a little bit straighter and you know, used his voice uh, as strong as he could to speak up. And he said, he said that you need to listen to me and do what I say. <laughs> the mother, holding her desire to chuckle, of course, or to probably laugh, proceeded to talk to the boy about discernment and ask him how he knew that this was God speaking to him and not himself expressing his wishes. They spent some time in conversation talking about discernment and what she hoped, of course, were words that this young boy could understand or comprehend. Notice that this story illustrates how to, as we enter in dialogue, we need to learn how to listen, how to speak with respect, even in the context of disbelief, and with respect for the person speaking truth in love while disagreeing. Discernment is critical to enter into the dialogue mindfully. That is, we should enter into discourse with the goal of understanding and learning with an open mind and heart to the possibility of transformation. The Quaker mother respected what the child said, listened carefully and intentionally to the young boy, and asked him to think how he knows the source of this knowledge. In this course, we must listen carefully, ask questions to deepen your and the other participants understanding and knowledge, each other's ideas, values, and experiences. I believe discernment is a critical aspect of civil discourse. 
Discernment encourages us to think carefully before we speak. What is it that we want to say? What is the best way to say it? Am I speaking in the voice of love and in nonviolent ways? Discernment also requires us to be mindful and intentional listeners. Do I understand not just the words, but the meanings of those words? The story and the narrative that accompany those words? Discernment leads us to understanding, to openness to the other, and to self-exploration and self-examination with humility. Discernment is an approach not just to engage in civil discourse, but to engage in meaningful relationships. To engage in civil discourse means to be open to the other in heart and mind. To offer others respect, as a Quaker educator Paul Lacey used to say, respect another person without justification except that he or she is a child of God. I don't believe this implies that we must accept and believe all views, but that it is our responsibility to strive to understand the issues as well as the assumptions, the stories, the narratives, and the experiences that lead each of us to form our values, beliefs, and ideas. Judge challenged us earlier this evening with the following questions. When we speak, especially with those whom we disagree, are we more concerned about being right or about being in relationship? Are we more concerned about confirming what we have always known to be true or to being open to an authentic encounter with another? Discernment involves addressing these questions before and as we engage in dialogue with others. As a Quaker, I strive to follow the peace testimony of my Christian faith. This includes how I engage in discourse with those around me. I believe it takes intentionality in using nonviolent language and communication. It takes humility to recognize that truth is not our possession and that as Christians, we are seekers of truth. This suggests then that critical to discourse is the ability to listen with humility, hoping to discern and to grow in understanding and to be in communion with others as we journey towards shalom. Thank you. Wow, there's a lot there to chew on. Um, Nate and Jeannie are going to be circulating in the room to pick up note cards. And so if you have a question that you'd address to any one of our panelists or to the panel as a whole, then I uh, certainly encourage you to do that. Uh, I see Nate over here. Jeannie's walking around as well. So while they're doing that, I'm going to take the liberty to ask the first question. And that is... Um, uh, 
to give Josh Lime an opportunity uh, to reflect a little bit, if you would, Josh, on uh, some of the uh, comments and thoughts that you heard from your distinguished panelists, uh, particularly as it relates uh, to your own uh, ideas that you put forth in your, your paper. Yeah. Are, we, are we on? Can you hear me? Okay. Thank you. Um, well, as Beck said, there is a lot to chew on. Um, so let me just highlight a couple of things that I thought were extremely helpful from my colleagues here. Um, so uh, what Karen said, I thought, um, in terms of uh, what it means to live into a disciplined life um, is something we desperately need to recover. Um, learning to identify things that frighten me and to name that, and then to think about why it is that that frightens me. Um, our, our impulse to be frightened and then to try to control, as opposed to step back and trust that God might be at work in that moment. Um, I, do, I would love to hear you say more about why you think it is that we do become defensive and become destructive in that defensiveness. Um, you also mentioned the point of staying calm enough to reason well. Um, I think that's a great point. I would love to hear you say more about how we, um, when we have issues that are so important to us um, and of such uh, magnitude, how do, we, how do we either not um, let our emotions get in the way um, or discipline those emotions in a way that they lead to more light rather than heat. Um, you also said, um, loving your neighbor means I commit to a position. Um, and that um, dialogue across difference doesn't seek agreement at all costs. Um, that has to be true um, for a Christian way of speaking. And I think the question becomes, what it looks like to hold a position with deep conviction um, while also giving space to another and not requiring that they conform. Um, Kamesh, of course, your very organized speech was uh, quite helpful in a number of ways. I, I like that you mentioned towards the beginning the deeply complex nature of the issues we're facing. It is, tempting to, and often this is what happens in public discourse, is things get simplified so much um, that they become caricatures of the real issues. Um, so, which actually ties quite well with something Lorna was talking about, that is discernment. How do we learn to see clearly the various layers of the issues we're dealing with? Um, <clears throat> your point about, uh, it, when you said um, our finite and flawed nature leads us to abuse truth claims. Um, I would love to think about that a little bit more, how we have been so frequently practiced that well, <laughs> abusing truth claims um, as opposed to wielding them with a posture of peace and grace and as a gift we've received and to give. Um, <clears throat> made some other notes on Lorna's. Uh, that poem you shared at the beginning was remarkable. Um, thank you for that. I think the, um, the point you make about civil discourse means that we must be open to one another in heart and mind. 
um, how we can think about what are the resources we have for doing that. Um, how do we become open in heart and mind? Um, because it seems to me that that's much of the trick, right? that we are closed and we go into conversations closed already. What does it look like to open up gaps um, where we can see ways forward? Um, and I'd lo- one last thing I'd love to think more about, if we have time, is the question of common ground. How do we, um, especially just for the sake of peace in our culture, um, even when we have dramatic differences from one another, how do we seek things we all care about and pursue those together? Um, what it would look like to, to do that. So those are some of my initial thoughts. Thank you. A, a question from our audience, and I think it, it could be directed to any four of you, any of the four of you. If words can destroy, do we have a responsibility to silence words that would harm others? If words have the ability to destroy, do we have a responsibility to silence words that would harm others? I suppose, uh, anyone else want to go ahead? Okay. Um, (laughs) You got it. (laughs) I mean, I I guess we could think about that from a couple different perspectives. From a legal perspective, of course, that's illegal. Uh, That the First Amendment protects um, hate speech. Um, and I think from what I understand from the Christian perspective is that the most um, faithful response to such things is simply to have a community that witnesses to a different way of life um, and learns to reflect a community that speaks with peace and with grace and with truth. Um, if Jesus does not himself resist violence, I'm not sure how we could get to um, silencing discourse um, in any way other than witnessing through our life together. That's my initial thought. Yeah, I, from my perspective, I think we need to also think very carefully what in what context or which ways do we think of words being uh, a weapon to destroy? Because mm-hmm. it's also words can destroy the speaker as well as the listener. Mm-hmm. And also, when you think about, um, you sometimes had to destroy something to rebuild it. So I think it's not necessarily that destroying can be necessarily a bad thing or a negative thing. It could be a way to, for rebirth and for new perspectives and for new ways and for new growth. I do have a clear conviction on that, and my answer is no. We should not shut down speech, that even the speech that we consider destructive, for a multitude of reasons. First and foremost, the abuse of claims that uh, I had mentioned earlier. If I have to live by the golden rule that I have to do unto others as I would have them do unto me, here's a reality. In many parts of the world, Christians are simply not allowed to speak of their faith in Jesus Christ because that very claim, their faith in Jesus Christ, is considered destructive to their society. 
and therefore their speech is stifled. Do I want them to have the freedom to express their faith in Jesus Christ publicly? I absolutely do. Well, in that case, if I want them to have the freedom to express uh, what is important to them in a way that's offensive to their culture, on the flip side, I must give freedom to someone who may speak something offensive to me. A um, few uh, days ago, uh, Josh, Nate, and I had a, a colloquium on a uh, teaching roundtable on this, and the question that was posed, should we allow, say, neo-Nazis to have uh, ads on campus paper uh, or uh, newspapers? I said, well, they may hate my very existence, but I'm actually going to defend the right to say that because I hope they will give me the freedom to say what is offensive to them. So. I have a well, very loud microphone, um, <laughs> number one. Um, I have a slightly different take on this. Um, I do believe that I say to the students um, that they can speak their conscience but they cannot use words as weapons. That's the expression I use, this is words as weapons. To tr and I'm trying to have them self-monitor to discern the difference in their own spirit when they're speaking. If a student has a neo-Nazi conviction and speaks that with conscience in the class is different to me than a student who um, uses words as actively as a weapon against another student. Now, I may not be able to prevent that because I am creating a container for, for speech to be free, but I will purposefully educate about it beforehand that it, that it hurts and that it wrongs, and then I will take action about it afterward. So I, I do see that, yes, we have to allow conscience of all types, even when someone's moral perspective is, is so troubling to ours. But I think that you can do a lot to, um, to lay the groundwork to prevent that. And then you can do a lot with how you educate through it, how you redeem it, how you answer it afterward. Yeah, so. Another question. We should speak the truth in love, but anger is not inconsistent with truth, nor is it inconsistent with love. Do you think speaking in anger is ever appropriate, or even a legitimate way of speaking in love? If speaking in anger is not appropriate, we'd have to throw out the Psalms, <laughs> wouldn't we? Um, anyway, I'm just going to stop there and see what my <laughs> colleagues have to say about that one. I'll, I'll speak as a psychologist now. Okay. <laughs> I'll wear that hat. I, I think there is room to speak in anger because that is part of, of the emotion of that person. It's part of their narrative. It's part of the story. And in order to understand their experience and what they're going through, we need to allow them to speak with that voice and, and potentially then help them understand where that anger is coming from and how to move from that anger to speak 
in love and through love? I guess it depends upon whose anger. My anger is typically sinful. My anger is typically based on my pride being hurt or me wanting to have my way. So my anger is typically wrong, and for me to speak in anger is most likely wrong. However, my theology colleagues can, can, can confirm, as I look through the Bible, the angriest character in the Bible is God himself. <laughs> so God's anger is obviously not like my anger, so I don't want to make a categorical statement that uh, you shouldn't speak in anger. Um, but the question is the nature behind the anger. I do know that my anger is often sinful, so when I speak in anger, it's most likely wrong. So. I, I think that's a helpful distinction, Kamesh. Um, and that I think it'd be very difficult to make a categorical statement about this. Um, and that in seeking discernment or in seeking to be more acquainted with our own failures, um, surely much of our anger stems out of places of fear and a desire for control. Um, and yet, of course, there are many things worthy of being angry about. Um, and if you look through the pages of the Gospels, Jesus has some pretty withering critiques of um, those who stand in the way of the kingdom of God. Um, so um, I suppose in many cases, it might even be inappropriate not to speak with anger. Um, but that doesn't relieve us of the duty of examining why we're speaking in this way. Is it for destruction or ultimately unto the hope of reconciliation? Another question. What is the loving response when a person categorically claims that persons sharing my viewpoint on an issue are simply being bigoted or hateful? Is this a turn the other cheek scenario? This sounds an awful, like, like, uh, an awful lot like simply sidestepping the issue and avoiding conflict, which seems contrary to what we seem to be promoting here. So when you're the recipient of mm -hmm. that kind of labeling? Mm -hmm. yeah. Holding a view that others see as being bigoted or hateful. Mm -hmm. What's our response? Mm -hmm. My uh, first response to that would be, um, well, hopefully, in, if we're disciplining our own speech, we're learning to move away from uh, those sorts of words that um, uh, would tend to categorize people as simply out of bounds, not worthy to be um, engaged, etc. But if we're the recipients of that kind of language, um, I suppose it's our duty at first to try to seek to understand why the person thinks that, um, to try to receive that with as much grace and patience as we can. Um, and yet... Um, if we are firmly convinced that our position is honoring of Christ and uh, conforming to the kingdom of God, then we simply have to receive that label. Um, but I don't think it means we don't try to engage that person further and maybe even try to model for them what it would look like to shift our language. 
I would wholeheartedly agree that that's a moment to say, tell me why you feel like this. Tell me about your life that brought you to the place where you feel that for someone else to hold a differing opinion on this issue is bigotry. What, what makes you feel so strongly about this? What makes you feel so sure that that's bigotry? It, absolutely, because I tend to think that at a moment like that, that person is, is really telling you that they want to tell you their story. And I, I have learned so much about the divine attribute of forbearance, that God forbears. He's not anxious. He's not... God's not nervous, God's not troubled, God just forbears um, in the face of those who rail at him and reject him and hate him. Um, and and it's, it's, it's that the forbearance in turn creates a space for the other person to start to speak their story. That I've seen that happen over and over again. Another question. It is uncontroversial that Christian groups have sometimes harmed those in other groups. Under what conditions does faithful Christian speech require calling these harmful groups to repentance? Well, uh, I would say that, um, well, an example that comes to mind recently for me is last year, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, um, came out with an overture that publicly condemned, confessed, and sought a way forward in its own participation um, in, um, in furthering racial division and hindering racial reconciliation. Um, because it came to see clearly that that was contrary to what the kingdom of God looks like. Um, so I would say there's... Um, any time that, um, I mean, oh, I, I, let me back up. This goes back to the point about learning to have our ultimate allegiance with the kingdom of God. So when we ally with any group um, that so focuses on a particular issue that it hinders its witness for the kingdom, um, we need to be able to see that and name it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just part, that's just a Christian, basic Christian discipline. <laughs> um, and that we need to, I mean, what's remarkable about Jesus is that he so often critiques his own group, that is Israel, more than he critiques outsiders. <laughs> um, most of his critique is for his own people. Um, and we probably should learn from that, that we need to learn first to, to identify problems in our own community. Um, so that's where I would initially go with that. I would agree with that, and uh, add one more thing, namely that first and foremost in those cases, we do have to, when confronted with our errors, 
we must repent. It's uh, as simple as that. But we shouldn't stop there. We must take the next step to presumably, if this is in a matter of dialogue over an issue with which we have a different disagreement, recognizing that as Christians, we are sinful people. Christians, as individuals and communities, are still uh, suffering from our sinful nature. Our flaw in one area does not automatically make another issue correct. So just because we have erred on one issue, therefore that doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater on another issue. So acknowledge our errors in one area and then get back to addressing the point that we were addressing in that particular conversation. I think I'll let this be our last question. Uh, as I introduced tonight's uh, session, I mentioned that we would be addressing the issue of civil discourse unapologetically from a Christian worldview and biblical worldview. But this person asks, much of what was said tonight helpfully explains how Christians should speak the truth in love. Can some of you say a bit about what you would like the non-Christian to take away from this event? hold us accountable when we fail to do so. Mm. Right? So this is, we have stated that these, these are our commitments as Christians. And, uh, uh, and when Christians, uh, yes, so when I uh, am around and when I address an issue in which I am not living up to the goals that I've stated for myself, I should be held accountable. I like that. I think... I would also say that I would hope that a non-Christian would see that the Christian faith has resources for improving or mending our civil discourse that are very difficult to find elsewhere. Um, that the nature of the God whom Christians worship, um, the life of Jesus Christ, whom Christians, uh, which Christians seek to emulate, um, provides a rationale for seeking grace and truth and peace across difference. Um, apart from which, um, other worldviews, um, I would argue, may have less resources. And so that if one could at least consider that the Christian worldview um, has something important to say in our current moment um, and offers resources that might not otherwise be had. I think... I would say, and often do say, to students of other faith or no faith, um, that Christianity is also, in addition to being a faith, it is also an intellectual tradition. And that students who are not Christian in confession of faith can still engage meaningfully with Christianity as an intellectual tradition. And that can be really fun because they can take all kinds of pot shots at us if they want on, the, on, a, <laughs> on a philosophical basis, on, a, on an intellectual basis. Um, and that will help them grow up in reason. Um, and then, of course, because I am a Christian and they know that I'm evangelical and that I love Jesus, they know that I'm also hoping that they will encounter Jesus through the intellectual tradition of Christianity, and they can laugh at me a little for the fact that I have an ulterior motive and I own it. So, um, <laughs> but, but, 
but we are, we do have an incredibly rich intellectual tradition. Um, and I think I'm, I'm proud of it. I know it's not perfect, but um, I think that both all of us are saying in a way that we think that we have a lot to offer. And I would say, um, kind of contrasting the previous question too about how our Christian faith has not always been very good about engaging in this civil discourse, right? Mm -hmm. And what we've been talking about is that we recognize those failures, as Kamesh had mentioned, mm -hmm. and that we coming mm -hmm. into the conversation with um, that humility and that sense of learning and, and of hoping to do better and mm -hmm. to get closer, not only to those around us, but to God through that work. Thank you. Well, to Josh and Karen and Kamesh and Lorna, thank you so much for your preparation, your prayerful consideration of this topic uh, and the work that I know went into it. Would you all join me, please, in thanking these? So our next colloquy evening will take place Monday, February 19th, after we all return from Jan term. Um, I know that seems a long way away, um, but in the meantime, we have thoughtful, engaging, and compelling speakers on our campus between now and then that will uh, allow us to think about and resonate with and practice perhaps some of the things that our speakers have encouraged us to think about. I will also plug um, ASWU has a, a series of uh, town hall meetings on Monday evenings, is that right? Uh, generally once a month between now and then and for the rest of the year that will also allow us to uh, take on contemporary and relevant issues, but to also perhaps practice some of the things we've been encouraged to think about uh, tonight. On February 19th, we'll reconvene, and that evening's conversation will be prompted by the question, can we disagree without being disagreeable? Can we disagree without being disagreeable? And our keynote speaker that night will be Dr. Nate King. I invite you to re return for that important event, and again, thank you for being here tonight. God bless you.